That's worth, that's news worth carrying around the world, right? It's really like the best news there is. I don't know if you watch the news, but it's really the best news that there really is, right? I'd like to take this occasion to just wish each of you happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I'm sure that Easter means different things to different people. I got to thinking about that this week, uh, how different people... Uh, Easter means different things. And so I thought I'd share with you uh, personally what Easter means to me, and uh, a couple of things anyway. First of all, uh, it occurred to me that Easter means to me that there's definitely life on the other side of this life. Now, most of the people I talk to and I ask them about this, they'll say, well, I don't know. I guess I'll just wait till I get there. And I'm like, no, that'll be too late. You can't wait till you get there to find out whether or not there's really life on the other side of this life. Easter is God's megaphone sharing with the world, anybody who will listen, there is life on the other side of this life. And that's a game changer. That changes everything about this life. When you, because of Easter, come to believe that there's another life on the other side of this life, a life that's described in the Bible, And you begin to realize that that's true and you trust God that he's telling you the truth and that Jesus' resurrection means that you can have confidence in this? All of a sudden it dawns on me that I am more than just a flesh and blood being. When my flesh and blood give out, there's still something more to me that's going to go on. The Bible calls it my soul. There's something eternal about each of us. That's more than just flesh and blood. It's our soul. And the Bible tells us that our soul is going to receive a new body. And that's why the scriptures say that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died. He is the preeminent one, the first of all who will rise. In Christ, the Bible says, all will be made alive. So the first thing Easter really means to me is, wow, there is life on the other side of this life. And as I go to understand what the Bible is saying, I understand that, you know, this life is maybe 100 years long. The next life is going to last for eternity. And all of a sudden it dawns on me, which life is more important? Which life is worth focusing on more? Easter means to me that there's a life on the other side of this life. The second thing that Easter means to me is that um, it fills my life with hope. I don't know about you, but things in this life don't add up. Do you have this problem? Things don't work out the way you would think they would work out if there's a God in heaven who really loves us. You have this problem? I don't understand why. One guy who's depressed can take 150 people in an airplane to their grave. Doesn't make any sense to me if there's a God who loves people. Unless there's a life to come where it all gets straightened out. And the reason that I can have hope is because I have this confidence based on the resurrection. It's why the Bible says this. If your hope is only limited to this life, you and I are of all people most to be pitied. If your hope is only connected to this life, ask yourself, what are you hoping for this morning? Where's your hope? What do you hope? What's your biggest hope? And if it's limited to this life, pity us. Because God has opened up a door to hope that goes on for all of eternity. And all of a sudden, when things don't work out right in this life, it doesn't really matter so much 
I don't have to work so hard to get even and to make everything work. I can live with not understanding why it is that this is happening to me. I can endure, I can put up with, because I know that on the other side, there is this life to come where justice will prevail and where God's vengeance will take over and straighten everything out. And I feel sad because most people live as if this life is all there is. And most people make decisions in their life based on the fact that this life is all there is. And a lot of people spend their entire life trying to get even for the hurts that they experience in this life and for the injustices that come our way, for the consequences of living with sinful people. And they live as if everything has to work out in this life, but hope, the hope that comes with Easter Sunday, I think changes everything. The third thing that Easter means to me is that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for my sin. That God has accepted the sacrifice for my sin that Jesus died in my place, which means there's a new deal on the table between God and people. That's what that means, right? No longer do I have to try to earn my way into God's favor. But instead, God has come and taken my sin upon himself and punished himself in Christ so that he could turn around and offer me this deal, which is a super deal. If you're into deals, this is the deal of all deals. Your eternity hangs in the balance, and it changes everything. This new promise from God, or should I say a renewed promise from God, Um, I've done uh, some renewing your wedding vows services, and they're really great because, you know, when you make a wedding vow, when you're first starting out, it's great, but you get 25, 30 years into it, that means something entirely different. Would you agree? Anybody been around for that long in the same marriage? All of a sudden, you get into it, and the, the, the promises that you made, they're the same promises, but they mean something entirely different. True? So here's God who made this promise way back in the beginning of time that he was going to bless people, that he was going to love people, that he was going to bring goodness into people's lives. And the thing goes along for a while, and after a couple of thousand years, God's like, I'm going to renew this promise. And it's going to mean something entirely different now that we've got 2,000 years under our belt between you and people and God, right? And there's this renewed promise that God brings to us. It's the same promise, but it's renewed. It's totally new at the same time. God's been promising to bless people. He's been promising to share his goodness with people. He's been promising to share his power, to share his abundance, to share his wisdom since the very beginning of time. But things got off to a rough start, if you believe the Bible. You know what? God created this wonderful couple. And he created this great world to live in. I wish you were all at the beach this morning when the sun came up. Sunrise, 629. Our service, 630. We were there. And we watched the sun come up. It was beautiful. And God created this wonderful world. But you know, in Genesis chapter 6, if you believe the Bible, you know what the Bible says? God says, I am sorry that I made these people. Things got so bad that God got, he was sorry. He even... Went through all the trouble. And the flood came. Noah's flood. And God started over again. 
He was sorry that he had made people because God had such good in store, and yet the people wouldn't trust him, wouldn't believe him, and so Noah's flood came along. But after that, God made a vow. He made, he actually, God, believe this, actually took an oath that says, no matter what the people do, I'm going to bless them. No matter what the people do. He went to a guy named Abraham, right? Many of you know this. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and then through you, I'm going to bless all the families, all the ethnic, all the nationalities of the world, no matter what they do. And he took an oath that I'm going to do this regardless of what people do. And uh, Abraham is the guy that Jews and Christians and Muslims all claim as their father. The three major world religions all claim Abraham as their father. And so the Bible is really the unfolding of the story of God keeping his promise to bless people all the way down to you and me. But I would also tell you it's also the story of the history of people who refuse to believe God, who refuse to trust him. And in doing that, deal themselves out of the blessing and the promise that God wants to give them. Right from the very beginning, Abraham even and his wife Sarah got tired of waiting for God to deliver on his promise. You ever feel like that? Wow, I thought I had this understood. I thought I knew what God was going to do. And then it took more time than I thought. And Abraham and Sarah decided to help God and take things into their own hands. And they created a mess that we're still living with today. It's on your TV every week. And if you track it down from Genesis all the way down to today, you can easily see what happened. Um, But God chose to bless Abraham anyway. And uh, in the end, he was uh, given that son, Isaac, who was promised. And and the promise went from Abraham to Isaac. And then uh, Isaac died, you know, and uh, his son, Jacob, uh, the promise went to Jacob. And Jacob was renamed Israel which means strives with God, right? And uh, everybody knows that God took Jacob's family down into Egypt and then years later turned that family into the nation that we know as Israel with their exodus from Egypt. And then the promise went to David, who was Israel's greatest king in their glory days. And this promise of God's blessing and God's goodness was manifest and displayed uh, in those days and under King David. And God blessed the nation of Israel. But the majority of the Old Testament is about Israel striving with God, fighting with God, refusing to trust him, refusing to believe him. God wanting to bless, but people refusing to believe. And finally, what was left of the nation of Israel in 586 B.C., about 600 years before Christmas, what was left, Jerusalem and a little bit of uh, Judah, uh, fell to the Babylonians. And so the Gentiles came in and dominated the nation of Israel for the next 2,500 years. You remember when Jesus came? The Romans were running the land. And part of the promise of God to the people of Israel was the land. And that's why it's still today being fought over. Because God promised it to his people. And for 2,500 years, up until, um, I think, uh, 1948, the Jewish people did not dominate, did not have control over the land that God had promised. There's a verse or two in um, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 7. I think it applies to us today. Um, Jeremiah lived about you know, 600 years before 
uh, Jesus before Christmas. And um, look what he says in verse 7 of chapter 23. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when people shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but people are going to say, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, and then they shall dwell in their own land. The day is coming. The day is here. When people, if they understood, would be saying, look, it's not that God brought the people up out of Egypt, but in our day, God has brought the Jewish people from all the nations where they were scattered and brought them together again. And since 1948, they've been a nation that's been recognized by the rest of the world for the first time in 2,500 years. A lot of times people think, you know, boy, if I lived in the days of the Bible so I could see these miracles, oh, then I'd be a believer. Can I tell you that no other group of people has ever had that experience in the history of mankind, where they've been as decimated and scattered as the nation of Israel, and then regathered and brought back together. Now, I don't think God's finished with them yet. We're in the early stages of some of the things that the scriptures say, But isn't it remarkable that God looked down the quarter of time um, a couple thousand years now and through the prophet Jeremiah says, you know, people are always talking about how I brought the people up out of Egypt, but there's going to be a time when people don't talk about that. They're going to be talking about how I brought them from all these different countries and brought them back together and gave them back their land. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible says that the stuff that happens to Israel really happens for our benefit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul wrote to the church, verse 6, and he said, the things that took place, uh, these things are examples for us that we might not desire evil like they did. That we might, might not trade trust in God for trust in something else. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These things happen to them to be an example to us so that we could understand how God interacts with people. And uh, what was different, you see, about Abraham when this all got started is that Abraham believed God. When God came and made a promise to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless your life and I'm gonna, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the world, Abraham believed God. But the history of the Old Testament, why it's all written down for us, when we read it, we realize that, you know, people have a hard time believing God and taking him at his word. People have a hard time, like, putting the facts of their life in the context of what God reveals. But Abraham believed God. And because Abraham believed God, as the Bible puts it, uh, God blessed him in the ways that you can read all through the scriptures. Now, one of the um, places where this is talked about in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 4, really an interesting passage, uh, we go from Abraham, which is like, you know, a couple of thousand years, 2,500 years before Romans is written. And so in Romans uh, chapter 4 and verse uh, 13... Uh, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, that God was going to bless him and through him was going to bless the whole world, and that everybody would come back to Abraham, Jews, Christians, Muslims, everybody understands what this means, that he would be heir of the world. 
How did that come to Abraham? It did not come by the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There are two ways that people try to get in on the promises of God, right? There are two ways that people try to get God to smile on them and try to get God's blessing on their life and try to uh, inherit what God uh, wants to give us. Uh, First, people try to keep God's laws. Most people think that the way into God's favor is by being good. I, I guarantee you, you go out on the street and ask anybody, do you think when you die you're going to heaven? And if they say yes, you say why? They say, because I'm a good person. And if you say, compared to who? They get stuck. Because they're not that good compared to God. Not that good compared to Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible goes on to explain that nobody can ever be good enough to earn their own way to God. It doesn't work. And people spend a lifetime trying to get the smile of God to come on them through the law. But there's a new way, a second way. And it's the way, it's really not new, it's renewed from the old way. It's the same way that Abraham came into the favor of God. It's through the righteousness of faith. Do you remember that when Abraham chose to believe God, God said, your faith will be counted to you as righteousness. How do you get right in the eyes of God? By trusting him, by faith, by believing what he says. And uh, when we read this, it's pretty exciting to see this upgraded way of faith. In verse 16, uh, this is why it depends on faith. Why does it depend on faith? In order that the promise that God makes to people may rest on grace. You know what grace is? Grace is the undeserved favor of God. Why is it that the only way to get the smile of God on your life is by faith and by believing him? Because then you understand it rests entirely on the basis of undeserved favor. It's all of God and none of us. And when you understand it, it changes you. It's the new deal. It's the new offer that's on the table since Jesus came. But it's really not new. It's the old renewed. It's the second upgrade, if you will. And not only that, the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed When you die, are you going to heaven? I hope so. No, 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 no. It's guaranteed. If it's not dependent on your behavior, but it's dependent on God's behavior, you can live with a guarantee that someday you will wake up in paradise like the thief that died next to Jesus on the cross. Today, Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. What do you have in life that's guaranteed? I'll tell you what God wants to give you is the guarantee that Christ's sacrifice on the cross in your place is sufficient. And because it's dependent on his grace, his undeserved favor, and when that gets into you, you start treating other people with grace, with undeserved favor, because you understand how powerful it is, and it guarantees this future that God has. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, God's favor, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, the Jewish people, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The faith of Abraham. 
And uh, he goes on and he says, you know, as it's been written, I've uh, made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom you believed. And if you skip down to verse 20, here's, here's a description of Abraham's faith. For those of us who have faith like Abraham, look at this. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. What is it when you don't have faith in God? You just don't trust him. You don't trust his word. You don't trust his son. You don't trust what he did on the cross. You don't trust that he came back from the dead on our behalf on Easter Sunday. It's mistrust if you refuse to trust. Now, this is a really hard concept because guess what? Who do you trust besides God? Haven't you been burned by lots of people? And haven't the first thing that you say when you get burned by people is, I am not going to set myself up for this kind of hurt again. I am not going to trust anybody. I am only going to trust myself. You know, and uh, it's a problem because um, Abraham's faith was connected with no distrust that made him waver concerning the promise of God. And then look, but he grew. Real faith grows as you get older. True? Real faith is not static. It grows. You have to make decisions all along the way in your life whether you're going to keep trusting God or you're going to level out. And there's a lot of Christians who don't understand that, you know, real faith, if it gets a hold of you, it just takes over more and more, has more and more implications the longer you live. Real faith grows. And so Abraham's faith grew. It grew strong. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the issue. In spite of the circumstances, in spite of what it looks like, you know, Abraham was 100 years old before he had a kid. And Abraham kind of and Sarah laughed. They're like, you know, we must have misunderstood the promise or something before God came through. Right? I'm fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that is why his faith was counted as righteousness. Now look at this, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. Why did God set that up 4,000 years ago, that Abraham's faith would be the source of his righteousness? Because he knew what he was going to do in Jesus, and Jesus is the source of anybody's righteousness. There's only one way you can be right with God. There's only one way you can enjoy the smile, the favor, the grace, the undeserved favor of God. And it's through trusting what Jesus did on the cross to take away everything that stands between us and God. And so he says, but the words that was counted to him, which were uh, to Abraham, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not just written for his sake, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, crucified for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. It will be counted as righteousness to us who believe that God brought Jesus back from the dead, that he died to get rid of our trespasses and that he was raised in order that we might be justified. You know what it means to be justified? It means to be acquitted instead of pronounced guilty. We're all guilty. But God, the judge, based on what Jesus did in our place, acquits us instead of declares us guilty. And we learn from observing Israel, you know, that trying to be good by God's standards is impossible. We will all fall short. But in spite of that, God keeps his promise held out to all who will believe in him. 
And uh, when people refused to believe, finally we saw that Israel fell. Jerusalem fell. God disciplined his people. And they're in that process even still today. But there is coming a day when God's promise will uh, take root in people's hearts. And they will be transformed. God kept sending prophets during this time. He kept sending spokespeople to speak to the people about what was going on. One of the people that he sent was a guy by the name of Jeremiah. One of these Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah. It's very interesting. Um, Jeremiah was a spokesperson for God. And 157 times in his writing, he says, thus saith the Lord. He loved the word of God. And wherever he went, he talked about, listen, this is what the Lord has to say. Uh, sometimes I watch the news and I think, you know, all the different events that are going on in the news, I think that the question ought to be, hey, what about God? What about God? Take any moral issue of our day and ask the question, what about God? What does God have to say? What about God? Take any relational issue and ask the question, what does God have to say? What would God do in this situation? Right? Take any financial issue and ask the question, what about God? What about God? And, and Jeremiah was one of these guys, wherever he went, he kind of asked that question, and he kind of put that uh, up in front of people, what about God? And as Jeremiah began to go around, um, as I said, 157 times he uses this phrase in his writings, he loved the word of God, and so... Uh, in the early part of his book, Jeremiah starts making this case that God has against the people because they won't trust him. They won't take him at his word. And uh, there's many places we could go, but in Jeremiah chapter 7, I just thought I'd you know, give you a little taste of what Jeremiah was saying to people in their worship. You know, like the people of Israel were coming to the temple. They were going through the motions. They were doing, you know, the traditions and the rituals. and so. But their heart wasn't in it. And God knew it. And God talked to Jeremiah about it. So Jeremiah says this in, in chapter 7 of Jeremiah. Um, here's what God tells Jeremiah to do. Verse 2, he says, go stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Go to church and stand out front, right? And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know what they're saying there? We've been to church, we've been to church, we go to church, we're good people, we go to church. Don't trust in those deceptive, don't think. That it's about what you do for God. Don't trust in those deceptive words. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations, you know, and stuff like that. So you can go all through the beginning of Jeremiah's writings here. I think a good way to summarize what Jeremiah had to say to the people of Israel at the beginning of his book uh, is in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, God says this through Jeremiah. He says, my people have committed two evils, 
two great things that my people have done wrong. Number one, they've forsaken me. They've turned their backs on me. They've ignored God. God created them. God made them. God blessed them. They turned their backs. They have forsaken me, and I am the fountain of living water. I am the source of life. And they have turned their backs on me. That's the first thing that I have against them. And second, they've then hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've not only turned their back on me, but they've turned to other things to be their God and to deliver them and to try to find life in and to try to find sustenance and to try to find satisfaction in life through and so forth. And so God says, I have these two great evils. I have this against these people. Now, there's a ton of all of that kind of stuff through the early part of Jeremiah, but there's also this parallel thread of God keeping his promise. Through the midst of all the rebellion of the people, God holding out his hand, offering, keeping to the faithfulness of his promise. Uh, This is, um, you know, this is 600 years before Jesus. And uh, look, here's, I think this is remarkable in chapter 33 of Jeremiah. Here's one of the places where he talks about this, holding out this promise that he had made way back in the beginning to Abraham, even in the midst of all of this craziness that's going on amongst his people. And look what he says in verse 14. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel. I am a God who keeps my promises. You can trust me. You can take me at my word. Well, look at how's he going to do this. Here's what he says, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, somebody on the family tree, somebody in the genealogy of David. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Why? Because God had made a promise to David that his kingdom would last forever. And so now everything's falling apart. Jerusalem falls. The the Gentile people are taking over the land for the next 2,500 years. And and look what God is saying. I'm going to send a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what Jesus did when he came, didn't it? It's exactly what Jesus did when he came. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. I think that's not come yet. We all know that Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, Israel will dwell securely, Jerusalem will dwell securely, and so on. And uh, look at this, though. And this is the name by which it will be called. That righteous branch, this is going to be the name of that righteous branch. The Lord is our righteousness. Wow. This is 600 years before Christmas. The Lord is going to be our righteousness before God. How can you be right before God? It's not about us trying to earn our way into God's favor. It's about God loving us to the point where he took the Lord and put him on the cross and brought him back to life on Easter Sunday morning to provide for us righteousness in the eyes of God. I hope when you walk out of here today, because you've put your trust in what Jesus did on the cross, that you understand that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous. And it comes by faith, not by the law. And so... uh, Pretty exciting. And and then uh, 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 (laughs) Jeremiah 31, real quick, right? Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, we have a really pivotal, really important passage because this is the one passage in the Old Testament where there's like a pivot. This is where the 
old promise to Abraham is renewed in prophetic form. Like looking forward, this is what's going to be new about the renewed promise. This is pretty exciting. Uh, This passage, by the way, is quoted at length in Hebrews chapter 8, and it's quoted in nine other New Testament uh, passages of Scripture. It's a pivotal passage. It's about the new promise. It's about the renewed promise. And uh, it's the reason that the newer part of your Bible is called the New Testament or the New Agreement. It's because of this passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new promise, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, my promise that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law in their hearts. I'm not going to impose from the outside I'm going to change people on the inside. I'm going to put a new spirit and a new heart inside my people. And they're going to live from the inside out rather than the outside in. Most people rebel, right? Because anything that comes to them from the outside, they push back. And God says this new covenant, once Jesus comes and once he pays this price and once people trust me and believe me, here is the upgraded promise. Number one, I'm going to create a desire for myself inside people. No longer is this thing going to be like something I have to perform, something that I, you know, begrudgingly do. This is something that's going to transform my heart. And it's going to make me have this desire for God and for his truth. He won't be imposed from the outside. We'll receive a new spirit that will transform us from the inside. And so today, whenever a person chooses to believe God's promise uh, to bless their life, they will know it because they'll receive a new heart. They will not be their, their old selves. Like you, you should ask yourself, I ask myself, is there a time that I was like this and then I trusted God and now I'm like that? All of a sudden I'm different than what I was because the very spirit of God comes into my life and transforms me from the inside out. God says, look, when I renew this promise, when I renew this vow, this oath that I made, here's what's going to be different about it. It's going to operate on the inside, not the out. It's going to be internal, not external. It's going to work on people's hearts and not just be about laws. You know, uh, I I think Ezekiel talked about the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 11, just uh, quick in verse 16. uh, Therefore say this, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries... Just think, I often think of the Holocaust and I think about the Jewish people and how far and wide they were scattered for how long, even in our day, you know. But even during that time, God says, uh, even when I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while. They didn't have their temple, they didn't have their land, but I was still with them. I will be a sanctuary for them for a while in the countries where they have gone. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you out of the countries that you've been scattered in. I'll give you back the land of Israel. And when they came there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and abominations, which I don't think has happened yet in the Jewish people. But here's what God's going to do. And I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
God's going to do something different. He's going to do it from the inside out. And if you haven't had that transformation yet, what I suggest is that perhaps it's time to put your faith in the word of God, in the promises of God. The second upgrade that this promise gives us in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, the second upgrade to the old promise that God had made is that it's now going to be all about relationships. Notice this. This is the promise that I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. And second, I will be their God and they will be my people. The whole thing is going to be about a relationship with the living God, an intimacy with God, a knowing, a personal knowing of God. And that never happened, you know, in all the years of the Old Testament. How is that gap between the way God is and the way people are ever going to be closed? Well, if you were here on Good Friday night at our service of shadows, you remember that we focused on how immediately after Jesus actually died, there was an earthquake and the curtain in the temple, the curtain that always separated God's presence from people was ripped in half. And access was granted through Jesus' death right into the presence of God. I will be their God and they will be my people. And after the cross and after the coming of this one who is our righteousness, we were granted this special relationship with God. And I think this makes for a whole new identity. If I were to ask you, who are you today? Who are you? Most people answer with, you know, I'm a carpenter or I'm a banker or I'm, you know, they, you know, or I'm married to so-and-so or I, I'm the father of these kids or, you know, who are you? I am a child of the living God. I am a daughter or a son of the living God. My primary identity is that what would you give for a relationship with God? I mean, think about that. What, who do you admire and ask you, you know, what would you give for a relationship with a person that means the most? What would you give in order to have a true relationship with God? Well, I'll tell you what, God gave his son, right, to have a relationship with you and me. And one of the things that God says he's going to upgrade about the promise that he made to bless people is that he's going to give us a new identity as his people. An identity that God paid dearly for. And then finally, um, one other thing it seems to me that um, is given to us here is the promise of a glorious future. He's going to change my heart. He's going to give me this identity. And then verse 34, um, how is God, well, the second part of verse 34, how is God actually going to give me this new identity, make me a son or a daughter of his, qualify me to come into his presence? I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. I don't know about you, but I'm not afraid to go and meet God face to face and think, oh, man, is he going to bring up the time that I really screwed up? I will remember their sins no more. Wow. Could I live with that weight off my shoulders? Yes. That's the identity that God is seeking to give us. And then finally, uh, we're told that um, uh, the first part of verse 34, nobody, no longer will each person say to his neighbor, hey, know the Lord, for everybody will know me. Uh, the universal knowledge of God. There is a time coming, the Bible says, called the millennial period when Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. All the nations will flow to him in that place. 
And other parts of the Bible talk about this as a time of, you know, uh, worldwide peace. All the stuff that we work so hard and can't seem to make any progress on, the Bible says there's coming a day when there'll be no more weapons. They'll all be turned into farming instruments. So there's coming a day when nature will be at rest. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. Some, some of the pictures that God gives us of this coming day. And so there's this hope. Revelation chapter 21 talks about this new Jerusalem that God is preparing and so forth. A time when there'll be harmony. Do you believe in a future? That even death can't keep you from experiences, from experiencing. Uh, God promises an everlasting promise. And the question is simply, do you believe him? Why does the world hate Christians and Jewish people so much? Why do 147 students get gunned down in Kenya just for being Christians? Why is that? I think it's because we have something. The promise of God's blessing that is not dependent on the world's systems, not dependent on the world's leaders, not dependent on the world's economy, not dependent on anything in this world. Whereby if somebody puts a gun to our head and asks us, are you a follower of Jesus? You are so confident that you're going to say yes because you know what's coming in the future. Why does the world hate us so much? Because we have a resurrected, death-defying Lord and Savior. And you can choose to trust him, like Abraham did so many years ago, and begin to enjoy the promises and the blessings of the goodness that God wants to give us, all of which are of himself. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we're so thankful on Easter Sunday morning. Because you've thought of everything. You've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Your love for us is infinite. Just the fact that you desire us to be with you in your presence for all of eternity. We know we don't deserve that. We know, Heavenly Father, we could never earn that. But you, as our Father, loved us enough to put your Son on the cross. And to put all of our offenses onto him. And let him die and pay the penalty for our sin in our place. And then you turned around and brought him back from the dead so that we could have confidence that you accepted his sacrifice. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we trust you. If you did not hold back your only son, then we're sure that you will graciously give us all things in the future, which would be much less than the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.